You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, Ray here. As intelligent listeners of the show, you know which resources to turn to for the facts of the Second World War, nonfiction books, reports, documentaries, and of course, the history of World War II podcast. But to bear witness to the past in a more palpable sense, to truly inhabit the day-to-day experiences of the war, sometimes there's no better resource than the texture and emotion of a well-crafted, historically detailed work of fiction. The War Girls by V.S. Alexander is one such novel. Based on actual accounts of life in the Warsaw Ghetto and the real women who operated as spies in enemy territory, The War Girls is an immersive, high-stakes story. It plunges you into 1939 Poland, as Hitler's Operation Himmler sparks his campaign to annihilate Poland, and an almost ordinary summer gives way to the long season of occupation. Soon, three young women from Warsaw a Jew imprisoned in the ghetto, her sister who joins the SOE in London, and a Catholic on the Aryan side of the ghetto wall, will unite to fight against the Nazi stronghold, calling themselves the War Girls. Through his meticulous research and powerful storytelling, V.S. Alexander opens a window onto the reality of waking up in Warsaw on both sides of the ghetto wall. Real people, including Emmanuel Rigobloom, the scholar who chronicled the experiences of Jews in Warsaw until he was executed, are woven into a thrilling plot that you won't soon forget. Pre-order your copy of The War Girls by V.S. Alexander today, or look for it everywhere books are sold when it comes out July 26th. For more information, visit vsalexander.com. And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast. 
episode 373, Malta, a Thunderstorm of Steel. As April 1942 opened up on Malta, General Dobby, no longer in charge of the military situation, was able to focus on the bigger picture, so he begged the Chiefs of Staff for more supplies. But just in case they were not in the mood to be compliant, he told them of his expected date of surrender. But first he explained the island's dire situation. To this, London replied, another convoy was being put together, and yet. On April 4th, Sir Dudley Pound wrote that the convoy could not come before May, and to compensate for the delay, supplies would be coming from Gibraltar and Alexandria. This cheered Dobby up until April 15th, when he was told any shipment from May is scratched. Now they were looking at June, and even that was not a lock. Dobby, still desperate, needed ammunition and flour pronto, so he used bleak facts as his ammunition that he started firing at the chiefs of staff. First, he wrote that morale and the willingness to fight were not Malta's problem. Eagerness was the order of the day. No, it was their dwindling ammunition stores that would decide the outcome. Specifically, heavy AA shells would be gone by the end of June, whereas light AA ammunition would be gone by the end of July. And even this was with the gunners only firing at the bombers, ignoring the fighters as instructed. As far as fuel, that looked a little bit better, as it should last until the end of August. Of course, the only reason for that was they had so few fighters and bombers to put fuel in, which brought on its own set of problems. Still, Dobby estimated that about 10 weeks after the fuel ran out, they, everyone on the island, would have to give in. Even if the people were not fed and everything went to the military, because without aviation fuel, the island would be truly defenseless. But all this was practically mute itself, as the food situation was even worse. First, they had enough flour to last until the end of May, but that was only if the largest mill on the island, located near the capital, could be restored and hopefully not bombed again. As for all the other foodstuffs, they should last until the end of June. Either way, they were coming close to the end. Either they received more supplies or would have to surrender and hopefully be fed by the enemy. Yet the patron saint of Malta, i.e. Churchill, would not hear of the island surrendering, as this would mean the eventual fall of North Africa, then Egypt, then the Middle East, and probably India after that. And that would be the end of the game for Great Britain. No, Malta would not fall so the Prime Minister got to work. Knowing the American carrier Wasp was in British waters, having arrived with Task Force 39 in April of 1941, and it stayed there to help strengthen the home fleet, Churchill messaged FDR and asked could the carrier be used to send 47 Spitfires to Malta. FDR agreed, and the Wasp was soon in the River Clyde, taking on the Spitfires. Unfortunately, as speed was of the essence, only 47 Spitfires could be gathered together at this time. However, there would be two squadrons of pilots going along as well. So again, another boost for Malta. 
and it was this boost that Dobby and Hugh Pugh were looking for, though it did not solve the food problem. It was a start. The Wasp departed Scotland on April 14th, with Force W serving as protection, borrowed from the home fleet. Force W consisted of the battlecruiser HMS Renown and the AA cruisers Cairo and Charybdis. The two destroyers, Madison and Lang, rounded out the escort. Planning it so that the convoy sailed by the Straits of Gibraltar in the early mornings of April 19th, this gave the ships of Operation Calendar the best chance of getting by the Spanish coast, which was full of Axis spies. At 4 a.m. on April 20th, the WASP launched 11 Grumman F-4F Wildcat fighters. All told, the WASP could carry 64 planes, and the Wildcats were going up to establish a CAP, or Combat Air Patrol, over Force W, while the 47 Spitfires warmed up their engines in the hangar deck below. They would have to be lifted to the deck one at a time, but after takeoff, they would head straight for Malta. Churchill's shot in Malta's arm seemed to be a success. One of the pilots was a 22-year-old Dennis Barham, the flight commander of 601 Squadron. Inside his wings was not ammo, but cigarettes and tools for the ground crews. To them, both items were equally important. Dennis would land at Luca Airfield in between Takali in the center and how far on the island's southeast corner. As his wings were being unloaded, the men doing the work congratulated Dennis on just missing the 9 a.m. air raid. No matter, they said, and then pointed up. Dennis, looking up, saw JU-88s high above, taking in the latest arrival of Spitfires, and probably smiling. For a while, Dennis and a few others hid in a trench. They tried to watch the German planes overhead while some of their comrades were checking the unexploded bombs that littered the airfield. The threat from above might kill them soon enough, but the threat on their same level was their immediate concern. As soon as they were given the go-ahead, the men ran further away from the scattered bombs, which is when one of the very tanned ground crews said to Dennis, Welcome to Malta. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Meanwhile, some of the other enemy air forces were moving towards other areas of Malta. Rising from Takali, Raoul Dado Longley, 
Buck McNair, and four other pilots of 249 Squadron were climbing up to 17,000 feet. Fortunately, as they were in Spitfires, this would not take too long. Once they were up in the air, McNair spotted Stukas just south of the island. Given their relative slower speed, they had wisely chose to form up south of Malta and then hit how far in the bottom corner. Well, 249 Squadron had something to say about that. Raoul ordered his pilots after the Stukas, but sure enough, even higher up were the 109s, and they chose this moment to dive down on the Spitfires. In order to not be taken out during the first few seconds of combat, the RAF formation split up. Yes, they survived, but now their organized approach against the Stukas was ruined. What came next was the normal, though barely comprehensible, dogfights. But Raoul had been through a number of these and decided to try out something new. First, he chased after a Stuka, but he only gave it a few of his bullets. Then he turned wildly towards a Ju-88. Yet here again, he only gave it a quick burst before turning to his real target, a 109, that assumed it was safe as Raoul was going after other planes. By the time the 109 pilot realized what was up, his plane was already on its way down, smoke and bits of his plane falling away. Buck McNair was thrilled to see this, but then noticed another 109 going after Raoul. Raoul must have sensed something because he gave a short, sharp turn. However it happened, Raoul's plane and the attacking 109 glanced each other. The 109 started going down, never to rise again, while Raoul saw that one of his wings was now missing about 18 inches from its tip. Clearly, it was time for him to come down under his own power before that control was taken from him. Heading back for Takali, if Raoul was hoping there would be fewer enemy planes to notice his expected clumsy landing, he was proven wrong upon his descent. Just before he touched down, a 109 came up behind him and peppered his plane. How he survived that pass, he would never know. But as there was an attack on Takali at the moment, there were probably bomb holes all over the airfield, which meant if one of his wheels found a hole, his landing could be over very quickly. There was only one thing for it, as he could not fill in the holes from his current position. He retracted his wheels and landed on the plane's belly. This went better than expected, and the only thing that hurt was Raoul's shoulders, as the harness had dug into them during his landing. But the game was still afoot. Surely that 109, or another one, would soon pass over and finish off the plane and or the pilot. As such, Raoul unstrapped himself, climbed out, and ran like hell, which was fortunate for him, as bullets from above unsettled the dirt just behind his feet. The pilot was safe. The plane was not. The raids continued that day. Smoke was everywhere. Everyone was exhausted. But they still found the energy to run to a shelter when the next raid came. Dennis, the new guy, got to experience Malta's confusion firsthand when he was told to take up the last Spitfire to protect it. He was told that it was either in Blast Pen E or F, but he had to get up in the air now. 
Arriving at the area as soon as he could with a hand-drawn map, Dennis looked around, but he could not find the Spitfire. Finally, he ran into a ground crew working on another plane. But when he asked them for help, they replied, and they did not stop working during this, that they had never heard of Blast Pen E or F, but he could F off right now. Another raid came to Takali that evening, this time 60 bombers with escorts, and by the time they left, many of the newly arrived Spitfires were charred and twisted metal. Nothing more. After this last raid, all the pilots were to report to the Zara Palace at Imdina, to the left of the center of Malta, just before the mountains, as Hugh Pugh Lloyd wanted to give them a pep talk, as if to somehow counter that day's actions. Hugh Pugh started talking, Dennis was not impressed, but then all came to a halt when there was another air raid. The men scrambled, but when the Germans were gone, Hugh Pugh picked up with as I was saying. Then he compared Malta and its warriors to Achilles, specifically that the AA units and the pilots were the island's shield until more planes could be delivered. Again, Dennis, when he left, was not impressed. While Dennis and the other new pilots learned to sleep through night bombing, the new Spitfires were hunted down. Within two days of their arrival, there were only Seven of those new Spitfires left, which pretty much filled in for the Spitfires lost during the latest raids. In other words, for Malta, it was a wash. Nothing gained, but vital equipment lost nonetheless. The daily bombings continued. No peace was allowed, no quarter given. But it was the final week of April that brought the war home for many, certainly those near the capital. Just before noon on April 24th, there was another attack on Grand Harbor, so civilian clerk John Angus hid in a shelter. When the bombing stopped, he emerged, but only to see a young lady he knew lying on her stomach. As he got closer, he could see that one of those bomb blasts had ripped her back open. He guessed that she was dead before hitting the ground. Two days later, April 26th, the Valletta Telephone Exchange received a direct hit. Again, John the Clerk was in the area and soon was covered in rubble. When he emerged, his black suit, nay, his entire being, was now a whitish-gray as he was covered with dust. John then realized that nearby gas pipes were probably now wrecked, so he shouted out not to light anything to see by, as they were still under rubble that had been the exchange. John, using his flashlight instead, found a way out and ushered all the others to safety. When he came out, several people surrounded him to thank him, and they offered to dust him off. John would later write that everyone was so helpful to one another at that time, people would bend over backwards to lend a hand. When he got back to his apartment, his brother took a look at him and said, has someone roughed you up a bit? To which John replied, yes, the German bombers. Still, the daily numerous attacks continued. On April 28th, the church of St. Publius in Florina was hit. Located in Valletta as its first stone was laid back in 1733, for the Maltese, the church was a part of their long and proud Catholic tradition. Now, after the smoke cleared, it lay in ruins. 
The church has two towers, and each tower has a clock in it. After the war, the church was repaired, but that one clock was left not mended, to act as a reminder. To this day, it still reads 7.50 a.m., the moment it stopped working when hit by a bomb. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To the west of Takali Airfield, and just above the Zara Palace, again just before the mountains on the west coast, the Intarfa Hospital was hit every day near the end of April. On the 20th, the kitchen was destroyed, and days later, several nurses or medical aides were bombed, the result being a broken arm, a broken back, and several deaths. This meant that the survivors had to not only attend to the latest victims— but their own workloads were increased as there were fewer hands around. It was a story that was being repeated all over the island. During one bomb raid, a German bomb landed near the hospital, but did not go off. As if programmed to do nothing else, a patient who worked for the bomb disposal unit and currently suffering from a fractured skull and other lesser injuries, got up, walked over to the bomb, and diffused it. Then he shuffled back to bed and tucked in. But the bombs kept falling. After the hospital was hit numerous times, next to be targeted was the Imtarfa Club and Infant School, then the football grounds and tennis courts, then the underwater tanks, and then two of the blocks of the hospital. Soon, the less injured were taking care of the more injured. There was only one other category. Dead. However, the plethora of Axis planes coming over each and every day had an upside for the defenders. They had something to shoot at, and with all that practice, they were getting pretty good. Maybe a little too good in the opinion of the German pilots. A German crew member being interviewed on German radio said of the defenders of Malta, Malta is one huge battery of AA guns. Heavy and light AA guns are at every important point. Shells come up like a thunderstorm of steel. When the guns cease, the Spitfires and Hurricanes hang on the tails of the German dive bombers, trying to shoot them down during the dive. The Times of Malta printed a transcript of this and then reminded its readers that the AA guns had shot down 99 bombers that month of April. Could they get one more for a nice round 100? Time would tell. As the article came out on April 29th, many wondered if the Axis, who were probably aware of this statistic, or at least aware of this article, may take the last day of April off to deny the AA gunners a chance at celebrity. No such luck. The bombers returned that last day of April. However, the AA gunners did not shoot down another bomber. No, they shot down three. The island celebrated this relatively small but morale-boosting accomplishment. But here is the downside to this upside. 
For example, Ken Taffy Griffith's AA gun crew used just over 160 rounds during that month of April. Back in January, it had been just under 30,000 rounds. And the Axis planes overhead suffered as a result. But they kept coming regardless. On a side note, most of Taffy's unit was made up of Scotsmen, so as Ken was from Wales, he was labeled Taffy, and that was all there was to it. But during that month of April, he and his comrades had downed numerous planes and were ready to go again. But that was part of the problem. There were not enough shells, just like there wasn't enough of, well, practically everything else. By the end of April, there was not only far less ammunition than there had been, but they were also running low on replacement barrels, which had been warped with overuse. Whatever the Germans were going to do in May, the defenders knew they would not be able to duplicate their performance. With all this being said, General Kesselring still had plenty of planes left over. He was not going anywhere, nor were his daily attacks. In fact, he, like the defenders, was only getting better. Some 6,700 tons of bombs had been dropped on Malta during the month of April. For comparison, during the Battle of Britain, 18,000 tons were used in all. The island was on its knees, and Kesselring would keep it there. And it will come as no surprise that with Malta taking such a beating, its ships and subs forced out, Rommel received the vast majority of his supplies and reinforcements that were sent in April. Exactly 99.2%, if that helps. And with those numbers, the Desert Fox made his plans to take Egypt. That same month, April, Count Ciano, Mussolini's foreign minister, wrote in his diary, The Duce informs me that Marshal Kesselring, on his return from Germany, brought Hitler's approval for the landing operation on Malta. It appears that the island has been really damaged by aerial bombardments. This does not, however, alter the fact that the coastal defenses are still intact. Therefore, in the opinion of some naval experts, the undertaking is still dangerous and in any case would be expensive. Which seemed to indicate that as the airfields had been obliterated, it was now time to focus on the AA units around the island. Either way, General Hugo Cavallero was put in charge and told to come up with an invasion plan. Cavallero got to work, and at the basis of his plan was the fact that Rommel would have to make an attack against Tobruk, and that would tie down all the enemy forces in North Africa. Next, this would free up the rest of the Axis Mediterranean units to hit Malta, but the wild card, hopefully a good one in all of this, was General Student and his parachute division. They were to come up with their own plan and incorporate it within Caballeros. But, like not knowing how sausages are made, the planning started to fall apart as some Axis pilots said that too many planes carrying the paratroops would be shot down. And several Axis naval personnel said, if we try to land men they will die on the beaches, or their ships will be sunk before they can unload their men. The British Royal Navy might not be stationed at Malta at the moment, but they could be there in relatively short order. It was back to the drawing board, but all Kesselring was waiting for was for Rommel to take Tobruk. 
Once that happened, he would give the order to invade, no matter what his staff or anyone else said. And Kesselring had the backing of Hitler. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So there will definitely be an episode next week, a regular episode. After that, I'll be at the Grand Canyon, but I'm going to try to squeeze one out that week as well. We'll see how it goes. Anyway, so just wanted to say thank you to a couple of people who have donated. Uh, let's see here. Axel Prophet has made a donation. Thank you. Matt Rafter, David Lapping, uh, Keenan Donahue, Roland Rose, and Michael Sturdevant. And Michael uh, wrote a lovely email with his donation. So, Michael, thank you very much for that. And I would like to thank Kevin uh, Barkima, who bought a Churchill mug. So, again, thank you very much. It really makes a big difference around here. And we will keep going with the story of Malta until we get past Operation Pedestal. And then it's back to the Eastern Front. Take care, everyone.